If you have a Bible today, let's go to Acts chapter 15. Anybody here ever had a disagreement with anybody else? <laughs> Just by a show of hands, how many of you had a disagreement on the short little ride to church today? Not today, normally. It's part of being human, really, I think, right? We have conflict, seems pretty often, with family, with friends, with co-workers, sometimes with complete strangers on social media, it seems, sometimes. And you're not, you might not believe this, but it's actually possible that two people who fully love Jesus can actually disagree about something and find themselves in a conflict. It's always been easy to find ourselves in disagreements with others and in conflicts with others. It seems to be even easier today, it seems, in the world that we're living in where our life is so tightly compressed with things like social media or even our news media. And because disagreements can happen so easily, that's one of the reasons we thought it was wise that the first promise we make in our church covenant is we're going to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because we're going to find ourselves oftentimes at a place where conflict and disruption in relationships is very easy to happen so today we want to spend some time talking about as God's people how should we handle that how should we handle disagreements between ourselves and so we're in Acts chapter 15 if you don't know we're preaching our way through the book of Acts and we've come to Acts chapter 15 today we were in chapter 13 and 14 for a while tracking Paul's first missionary journey which was really predominantly in a region of the world known at that time as Galatia and Paul and his companion Barnabas uh, were traveling throughout Galatia bringing good news that the world that part of the world had never heard heard before that there is one true God and, and that your sin stands in the way of you knowing that one true God. But unlike all the other religions of the world, we've not come to give you a to-do list, how to fix yourself, how to clean up yourself, how to do what you got to do to make yourself right with God. But the good news of their message they were delivering is God so loved the world that he did all the work. He sent his only son Jesus into the world. He did live that perfect and sinless life. He died as a substitute on the cross for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God and because he is the perfect sacrifice his father raised him from the dead on the third day so now salvation and freedom and forgiveness is available because of the power of the gospel expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ and so that's the message that Paul and Barnabas were traveling throughout that region delivering and as you might imagine that message the power of the gospel was touching and changing and transforming lives in a powerful way in that part of the world. People began to walk with Jesus. People began to learn about Jesus. Groups of Christians began to get together in what we call today churches. And Paul and Barnabas helped set aside, set aside pastors and elders to lead and to guide those churches. And, and, and not long after Paul and Barnabas finished that work, and they sailed back across the Mediterranean, they get back over into their base of operations in Antioch. Some people were already coming behind them preaching a false gospel, causing confusion, saying that Jesus alone isn't enough. That if you really want to know God, if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to be reconciled to God, it's Jesus plus. You've got to be Jewish in your ways. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to celebrate 
certain special holidays. Your diet has got to be a certain way. And so last week we looked at the book of Galatians and how Paul responded to that madness and to that confusion that was happening there in Galatia. But that issue, the confusion, that false gospel being proclaimed, it wasn't just happening in Galatia. It was beginning really to sort of spread like wildfire. Wherever the gospel had gone to Gentiles, uh, Judaizers who were preaching this false gospel were also making their way in. In fact, today in chapter 15 of Acts, we find out that that false teaching had made it all the way to Antioch of Syria. And that happens to be where Paul and Barnabas are when they hear it and they see it firsthand for themselves. So I want us to see what happens in chapter 15 today, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking that issue. The reason is, is because we've covered that pretty exhaustively over the last couple of weeks. And as much as I might like to do that again, I want to move on deeper into the text because I want to get to the end of that today so we can talk about how do we handle disagreements between us. Especially brothers and sisters in Christ. When conflict arises, how can we do a better job going forward in that than perhaps we've done in the past? So the first thing that I want you to see today from the text out of Acts 15 is this. Number one, see the clash. I want you to see the clash between the opposing views here. Chapter 15, verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers... Unless you were circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Vehemently. Some translations say there was no small discussion. All right? They, they, they got after it. This was a major controversy and a major conflict. Things got pretty heated. That's the clash that sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. Second thing I want you to see is the committees. They form a committee there in Antioch. And we're going to see two committees actually kind of surface here. First of all, we have what I would call the Grace Committee. The Grace Committee. Continue looking at verse 2. Finally, the church decided to send Paul. It's kind of funny that Paul's on the Grace Committee. But he is. They send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. They need to go to Jerusalem. They need to talk to the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. This controversy continues to go on and on and on. And we need to get this settled if we're going to continue to move on in the proclamation of the gospel in the world. So we have this committee of grace. These people are chosen to go to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. And they told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, now I know it wasn't this way, but I'd kind of like to think it was this way, that when they get to Jerusalem, it was sort of like one of those scenes from an old western, where like the streets are vacant and the wind's blowing and tumbleweeds are blowing down the road. And here's Paul and Barnabas, you know, just walking down the street. I'd like to think it's like this big showdown, but it really wasn't quite that way. In fact, the Bible says that Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. And they reported everything that God had done through them. Verse 5, but then some of the believers. I want you to notice that these are believers too. They're called believers here. Some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted. The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. And that's the second committee. 
That's the committee of the law, right? So we've got two committees here at odds with each other. The committee of grace and the committee of law. And they're going to square off on the home court of the law committee's arena, right? They're in downtown Jerusalem. So that's the clash. That's the committees. And third, I want you to see the conference. The conference begins. They call a meeting. And there's great stuff in here, again, that I would love to unpack today. But we've already unpacked a lot of this for the last couple of weeks. So we're just going to fly over it here. Verse 6 says, So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. So both sides are represented. And verse 7 says, At the meeting, after a long discussion. Now, if you think the Baptist definition is long, for long is long, you should have seen what the first century definition in the church uh, with these Jewish and Gentile believers, what their definition of long, it's a long discussion. And Peter stood up after a long discussion. And Peter stood and he addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. So, so first of all, Peter is proof himself that God's saving Gentiles. Peter said, you know, God called me out to To do that, Gentiles have already been being saved, not by the keeping of the law, not by becoming Jewish, but they have been being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter goes on, he says in verse 8, God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter says, you know, I've delivered the gospel to the Gentiles. They've been saved, and not only do we know that they've been saved, but they've received the Holy Spirit also. Verse 9, Peter says, he made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through what? Through faith. Verse 10, so Peter says, so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? In other words, Peter says, our people have been trying for thousands of years now, hundreds, thousands of years now to keep the law, to be right with God by the keeping of the law. And millions of us have tried, and every single one of us has failed. And now we're trying to place that burden on the Gentiles to say you have to score perfectly if you're going to be reconciled to God. So he says in verse 11, we believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Good news. Peter's made his point, right? And he sits down. And then Paul and Barnabas, they stand up. Verse 12, everyone listen quietly. As Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. The point they're making is this. Listen, God has validated that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles by miracles taking place in their lives. That's been validation of the message of the gospel. That they're saved by grace, not the keeping of the law. So we've heard from Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and then a guy by the name of James stands up. This is not James, the brother of John. If you've been with us in the book of Acts, James, the brother of John, has already been killed uh, by Herod because he was a follower of Jesus and was preaching the gospel. This James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. They grew up in Nazareth together, in the same household together. And you might say that this James has become the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he's a good one, by the way. He's known as James the Just. 
That's a great name for him. He's a very wise, spirit-filled person. James also had a diff- another nickname, Camel Knees, was his other nickname. Because it was said of James that his knees were so callous from having been on his knees praying that his knees looked like the knees of a camel. So they called James the just old camel knees. So this is also, by the way, the same James that writes this little book toward the end of the Bible in your New Testament called the book of James. And we'll spend some time real soon checking that out as well. The book of James, by the way, is sort of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's just filled with wisdom. This is the right way, the best way, the wise way to live your life. And so James now is beginning to step forward. He has sat quietly this whole time. He's listened to both sides, and then he stands to speak. And this is what he says, verse 13. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. You see what James just did? He's going to prove what he's saying with Scripture. He says the prophets said that the Gentiles would come to faith. The Scripture has said, the prophets said that the Gentiles would become a part of God's family. And he quotes the prophet Amos. I mentioned Amos to the boys and girls earlier. Amos was living in the southern kingdom during the time of the kingdom split. But God called him to minister to those in the northern kingdom. And here's what James says. He quotes Amos, verse 16, as it's written, Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. Check, check. He did that. Verse 17, so that the rest of humanity, the rest of humanity, not just the Jews, but the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, Yahweh, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. So this is what James does. He goes to scripture and he says, look what Peter and Barnabas and Paul is describing. That's not breaking news. Amos told us so long ago that this was the plan of God. This is the agenda of God. This is what the word of God says. And then James says this, verse 19. And so my judgment is... That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is an epic moment in church history that James the wise, James the just, O camel knees, says, hey guys, listen, we just shouldn't be making it this hard for Gentiles to know Jesus, for them to love Jesus, and for them to be saved. This isn't necessary. Now listen. I just get the feeling that probably when he said that, half of the conference is like, yes, amen, amen. Thank you, James. And the other half of the conference is going, boo, boo, right? I, I, I mean, th- this, is, this is a contentious discussion. It was heated in Antioch, and it probably had its heated moments in Jerusalem right now. And it looks like the church is on the pre- precipice of just splitting Right down the middle. But James, he's not finished talking yet. Just when the fellowship is about to rip apart, James offers a compromise. That's the fourth thing I want you to see today, the compromise. And don't let that shake you. When I say compromise, I'm not saying that James compromises the gospel. Never, never, ever would he do that. And nor should we. 
He's not going to compromise the truth of God's word. Nor should we. He doesn't do those things at all. He doesn't compromise God's word. Here's what he does, though. He's seeking to build a bridge between these two divisive camps. So you, you got the extremists on one side of this argument, right? And they're pressing legalism. Here's the list of things that you've got to do to be right with God. They're on the extreme end of that spectrum. On the extreme opposite end of that spectrum are the people who are really kind of embracing this idea of license. That listen, we can do all the wrong we want to and God's still going to forgive us. God's still going to love us. And so you have these factions at both ends of the spectrum that are arguing. So James has now essentially said to the legalists, Hey guys, listen, you're wrong on this. Stop trying to make it hard for the Gentiles to be saved. But he's also got something to say to the extremists over here on the license end of the spectrum who are using their freedom in Christ as a license, as a permission slip to do whatever they want to do, to live any old way that they want to live. So you got some Jews that they wanted to mix Christianity with Judaism. On this end of the spectrum. On this end of the spectrum, you got some Christians who want to mix Christianity with paganism. And you might imagine how that might be deeply offensive to the Jewish believers. So James says this in verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, and he's about to now speak to those Gentiles. Here's what we're asking from y'all. We should write and tell them to do four things. Number one, abstain from food, eating food offered to idols. Number two, from sexual immorality. Number three, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. And he says, verse 21, For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. In other words, James is saying, let's just... Boil it down to these four issues. These four things are deeply embedded into the hearts and the minds of Jewish believers. They've heard this taught now for generations in every Jewish synagogue. So let's ask the Gentiles not to participate in these things. You say, well, why would they be participating in those things? Remember where they come from. They're coming out of paganism. And some of these new believers, they have been mixing some of their paganistic ways with this new life in Christ. And that's offensive to the Jewish believers. And so these new believers, they're practicing perhaps some varying degrees of paganism in their relationship with God. Now, an argument could be made that not all four of these things are inherently sinful. Obviously, sexual immorality is clearly sinful. But eating meat that you're butcher, butchered and thanked a false god for, should you stop and eat that, you know, in the to-go window? Is that inherently evil to do that? Or if at the marketplace they strangled a chicken, should you eat those chicken fingers if they rang its neck like that? Is that... Is that evil, right? Should that be 
at all cost avoided by all of us. And then there's the whole drinking of blood. That's just disgusting. <laughs> That's just not a good idea, right? Just in general practice. But, but these things made it difficult for Jewish Christians to fellowship with non-Jewish Christians. So James says, hey, Gentiles, when it comes to these things, knock it off. But not so you can be saved. Knock it off because you are saved. And God has called you to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. So why would you create an artificial barrier in your fellowship that should not be there? He's saying to both Jew and Gentile, don't make this hard for each other. Jews, Jewish Christians... Don't make this hard for the Gentile Christians. And Gentile Christians don't make this hard for the Jewish Christians or the Gentile Christians. And when you do, what you're doing is you're dredging out canyons between you that should not be there. Those are man-made divisions. They're not from God. And when you dredge out those canyons of division between you, you are denying the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to make us one in him. So James's verdict is, Gentiles, you don't have to be like the Jews. And Jews, you don't have to be like the Gentiles. But Jews and Gentile Christians, you have to strive to be like Jesus. And give grace as he gave grace to us. Give grace to each other. So that's the clash. The committees, the conference, the compromise, and then the correspondence. They wrote a letter. They came to this decision. And they wrote a letter that explained their decision to all the rest of the churches, to be circulated to all the churches. And notice they're keenly aware that the conclusion they've come to is not just... Man-made. Look at what they say in Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How many of our disputes and disagreements and conflicts might be avoided if we as God's people followed that as our model? We want to lean in and we want to hear from the Holy Spirit here regarding this. And there should be a yielding spirit between us about issues that are not essential to the gospel. A willingness to bend. A willingness to give. And above all, there should be a dependence on the Holy Spirit to speak and to guide us and to unite us as God's people. So the fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers now has some tracks to run on. Right? Gentiles, this makes sense. Jews, this makes sense. Now we can walk together in brotherly love as becomes a Christian church. They've got godly counsel. They've got godly clarity now. But guess what? Conflicts still come, don't they? This side of glory, they still come. It's still going to happen. In fact, we're not going to cover it today, but in this very same chapter, there's going to be a split in the ministry between Paul and Barnabas. They're not going to agree. And they're going to split, and they're going to go separate ways. And here's the thing that we've got to understand today. Listen, the challenges that we face as God's people when it comes to not agreeing on everything is not over things that the Scripture speaks explicitly to. The, the black and white things of Scripture, there's no argument there. 
The Lord has said it. That settles it. Done. No discussion needed. No vote to be taken. This is the word of God. But as you live a little longer, you begin to realize there's a whole lot of things that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly to. There's a lot of gray that's in there. And the challenges for us as brothers and sisters in Christ are in those areas. It's in the gray areas where Scripture doesn't speak explicitly to that. I just kind of made a list of gray areas that I've bumped into in the church in my life growing up. And maybe you've bumped into some of these. Style of music. The way we dress. Tattoos. Alcohol. Smoking. Politics. Vaccines. Just me saying the word vaccines, I'm going to get emails this week. I don't even have to comment on it, and somebody's going to write me this week. Homeschool versus private school or public school. And some of y'all are old enough to remember when card playing and dancing and being out on Saturday night might have kind of fallen into some of those conversations too. And the list can go on and on and on. It seems to be ever-evolving. Here's what's cool about the New Testament. We're going to see Paul in a lot of places address how we should navigate those kinds of issues. But to close today, I want us to look quickly at a chart that I put together this week that I hope will just kind of summarize the collective teachings of Scripture related to this. Hopefully it will encourage us and equip us to do a better job going forward than maybe we've done in the past when you and I don't agree and you don't agree among yourselves about some things as followers of Jesus. So let's start real quick on the extreme side of that spectrum. Way over here on the area of legalism is where we're going to start. And so I tried to pick one of these gray topics to talk about that we could just sort of walk through. So I chose vaccines. I'm just kidding. I did not choose vaccines. <laughs> I just want to try to find some benign subject matter today. So I went with cookie eating, all right? So on the far end of the spectrum, you may have some people who say, absolutely, positively, eating cookies of any shape, form, or fashion is wrong. In fact, they may even say, you cannot eat a cookie. I heard the cookie monster voice in my head just now for some reason. <laughs> you cannot eat a cookie. You can't eat a cookie and be a Christian. Can't do that. It's impossible to be a Christian and eat cookies. You know what that is? That's heretical. Follow the chart. Heretical just simply means that's not true. According to the teachings of God's word. Does the Bible teach us that you can't eat cookies and be a Christian at the same time? No, that's not in scripture. That's heretical. What is that doing? That's distorting the gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a gospel that says to be a Christian is Jesus plus don't eat cookies. Right? And then you'll be a Christian. Well, that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. Now, let's look at the polar opposite of that on the other end of the spectrum. These are people who are really into what we would call license. They love cookies. 
they, they grew up eating cookies, their mom and daddy ate cookies, their grandparents ate cookies, and they associate cookies with everything that is good and right and about God, and they would say, eating cookies is good. And, <laughs> and they would say, in fact, because of what Jesus has done for me, I can eat all the cookies I want to in any context I want to with whoever I want to. And that's my business and not yours. And if it's ever wrong, God's going to forgive me of that. It's a free pass to eat cookies whenever, however, with whomever I choose to eat cookies. And God will always forgive me of all my cookie eating no matter what. Well, The problem with that is that is also heretical. The Bible teaches us that the gospel does not give us a license just to live any old way that we want to live our lives. That also is a false gospel. It's reconfiguring the gospel. Now, I'll be honest. It's just really sort of hard to see somebody on far ends of the spectrum and believe that they're actually a believer. Those are pretty hard positions to take. Most of the time, our arguments... And our conflicts are going to fall somewhere in the middle. And that's probably the way it was in Acts chapter 15. And James just sort of mined that middle ground out that everybody was probably trying to find anyway. So, so let's go back to the legalism side of the column, but not quite so extreme. Here we have people who would say, yeah, well, listen, eating cookies is wrong. But my friends over here, the extreme legalists, they're not right about that. You can be a Christian and eat cookies. But you're not a good Christian. God's not happy with you if you eat those cookies. And, and you're really just sort of a, a deficient Christian. You're not a good Christian. The problem with that is that's a, a judgmental and an arrogant spirit and attitude. And what that's doing is it's, it's diminishing the gospel. It's making the gospel smaller and this issue of cookies bigger. Yeah, I love the gospel, but I love cookies. Or I love anti-cookie position more than I love the gospel. So the gospel is diminished then. Well, let's go back to the licensed side. We would have brothers and sisters on that side who would say, well, listen, I don't agree with my brothers who are extremists over here. They can be reckless and thoughtless and selfish cookie eaters. That's not right. But I do believe that eating cookies is good. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters on the other side of that spectrum, if you think that eating cookies is not good, it makes me a bad Christian, you're a judgmental, narrow-minded, bigoted prude. That's who you are, right? And what's wrong here? Well, now I'm judgmental and I'm arrogant on this side of the equation. I'm also diminishing the gospel. I'm saying that the this person not eating cookies is a bigger issue to me than the gospel is. And now I'm fixated on that. So what are we to do? Well, I think James kind of modeled that for us. And listen, this isn't easy. And I'm not saying it's always easy. Because I'm pretty passionate about my cookies, by the way. And I won't tell you my position on cookies. But I'm passionate about cookies. And we can be passionate about our preferences. And that's okay. And you never have to change your preferences. You can hold to your preferences. But what we have to guard ourselves against doing is making our preferences somebody else's principles they have to live by. It's okay if you want your opinion. If it doesn't contradict with Scripture, that's okay. And you don't have to change your opinion for anybody else's opinion. 
But as God's people, we got to be careful not to allow our opinions to become somebody else's obligation. Not easy to do, but this is the standard. We see James do this in Acts 15, and we want to run to the middle. We want to run to the cross. Again, I don't have to give up everything that I think or that I believe, but I can find a way not to dredge out a canyon between brothers and sisters in the Lord who mean well, but they come from a different perspective, a different understanding, a different viewpoint. And so I don't want to land in legalism. I don't want to land in license. I want to land in liberty. I want to land in grace. This is where the Spirit of the Lord is, by the way. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's where I want to be. And, and it's in this place of liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is that Jesus is more important than eating cookies or not eating cookies. It's important what you do with cookies. It's just not as important as Jesus. And, and so... In this place of liberty, now I want to get outside of myself a little bit and ask myself some questions like, how can I eat or not eat cookies so that my brothers and sisters are edified, encouraged, built up in the Lord, and so that my Lord and Savior is glorified? Is there a way to eat cookies and accomplish that? Is there a way to not eat cookies and accomplish that? And sometimes maybe it means that I eat cookies today, but I don't eat cookies tomorrow. To be able to accomplish that, Lord, show me how. This is the wisdom that I'm seeking. Are there times that I can abstain and glorify God? Are there times that I can engage in and consume and glorify God? And how can I do those things without confusing my brothers and sisters? How can I do those things without causing them to stumble into sin? Can I do those things in a way that's not going to lead somebody down a wrong path? These are the questions that I need to be asking myself here in this place of liberty. See what this is? This isn't judgmental or arrogant. This is loving. This is not the agenda of it's about me and what I want. And if that doesn't work for you, get over yourself. No, this is... Upward and outward in my attitude and in my thoughts. I want to be loving toward God and toward people because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what Jesus said was pretty important, right? To love God and to love others. So this is others focused. And what does that do? It doesn't distort the gospel. It doesn't diminish the gospel. It magnifies the gospel. And this is what I want. When me and my friend Jason over there, we don't agree, man, I want to find a way, brother, that in that, you and I can magnify Jesus in the middle of that. And if he is the kind of God that can't be magnified when you and I don't agree about cookies, what kind of puny God are we following anyway? See, I think he can be magnified in these conversations. I think the Holy Spirit and God's word will inform us how to come to this place where the spirit of the Lord is. And where there is liberty and where there is grace, life in liberty, life in grace. How many of you know constantly we need to be receiving the grace of God in our lives? But how many of you know that we're to be a conduit for that grace? It's not simply to lodge in us and go, thank you for your grace today, Jesus. It's to keep flowing through us to somebody else. To give grace. Because grace 
has been given. Yes, I want to receive it, but I want to distribute it. I don't always do that well. I miss that mark like you all probably do from time to time. I want to be a better distributor of His grace today than I was yesterday. And tomorrow than I was today. And I believe you want that too. So let me ask you as we close. Right now, maybe the Holy Spirit's putting somebody on your heart. That you need to extend the grace of God toward. There's been a disagreement. There's conflict. And you've just been content to sort of camp out on your side. And they've been content to camp out on their side. It's the Holy Spirit today prompting your heart to be a grace giver towards somebody else. How is he calling you today to find his peace like James did in the middle of your conflict? I know it's scary. won't be easy. Will we trust him to do that? Couldn't have been easy for old James to step up in that arena, right? And say, guys, here's how we're going to navigate this. But he did, and God was honored, and the church advanced, and we're sitting here today. We just don't know what may be hinging on the conflict that we may find ourselves in with another today. So God, would you give us grace to trust you? That you will bring peace. That the gospel will not be distorted nor diminished, but it will be magnified. Jesus Christ will be magnified in our midst. We're going to constantly face this challenge, just as in the text. Paul and Barnabas are going to go their separate ways in just a moment. But we thank you, God, for your grace in the midst of our challenges. And in these days especially, Lord, we need your wisdom. Because it seems these days there are more things to argue about and to vide over and squabble over than ever before. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of grace in the middle. So Jesus, show us how to do it. Lead us into this. God, for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. Let's respond to his word today.